Hello and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastalk and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me on today's episode is Eric Willicke, co-founder and principal of Elevate.to. Eric works with leaders to apply lean agile techniques and engages across many industries and some of the world's largest and most complex companies, as well as high growth startups. Eric is a principal contributor to the Scale Agile Framework and a SAFE Fellow. He has an amazing range of theoretical depth and practical knowledge on successfully scaling transformations. So I'm thrilled to have Eric share that with our audience today. With that, let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here with Eric Willicke. Eric and I met because uh, one of my largest customers at, at Tastop and someone's working really, really closely with in large transformation, they needed someone who was one of the leading experts in, in agility and safe. And I talked to a number of colleagues and uh, the same name came up as the number one person to help with these large scale, very consequential transformations. And, and that name was, was your name, Eric. So welcome. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, and since we we've really helped this customer progress, I think the you know the interesting thing is you know as as you just told me, as we were going to start, you've been reflecting on you know many years in how you've helped organizations progress, understand agility, reorganize around it, and and you mentioned that you actually had a couple of insights as you were reflecting on on what the next year ahead should should bring for you. So uh, you mentioned simplicity and flow. So if you could just Tell me a bit about how you got to those as, as the conclusions for the sort of thing you'll be thinking about in 2021. Yeah, one of the things I've realized over the years, every year I try to look back and just kind of think about what the theme is of my career, my life, the work I've done with clients and so on. And this year, a quote kept coming up in the last couple months of the year around a number of different topics. And the quote was variations on the theme of, you just make that sound like common sense. Like I sit there talking about portfolio management and it's mind-boggling complex numbers involved and leaders at the executive level saying, wow, thinking about that, that just sounds like common sense when you describe it that way. And hearing that for leading transformations and leading change and working through how some of these very complicated, large-scale environments we both play in work out. And I realized that maybe that's a superpower, but Regardless, it's a service that I can provide to the world around how can I make some of these things simple enough that you can convey them quickly, that we can have meaningful conversations that get to the essence of things without being distracted by everything else that comes with it. And as is a habit when I do these reflections, I realize that the good ones are also applicable to my personal life and the way I show up with my clients and with my family and so on. So that's where this idea of simplicity really came to bear. How do I continue distilling down to the essence of things and really focusing attention, intention and attention both, on those critical elements that are the the crux of making everything work? And then kind of connected to the other one is, I I struggle with attention. I'm, I'm a leader in the digital age. There's information coming from everywhere. How do I get to where I can go deep and create these elements. And this started out as a very personal one, but then I realized it's one that every executive I work with struggles with as well. How do you create the space to distill down to the essence of things so that they're simple and everybody can jump onto them? And that's where this idea of creating personal flow, and I realized, of course, then, duh, as a lean guy, everything is around creating flow with my clients and helping them 
create flow at every level of their organization. So I just kind of got there with 2021 is going to be about really focusing on personal and partnering with my clients, professional flow and simplicity. Yeah, I think there's just something so profound to that because I I know as as organizations and as you know, ourselves as individuals, as leaders, as as contributors, we haven't just completely inundated right with different ways of measuring things, different approaches to transformation, more and more different frameworks, and so on. And I think this complexifying absolutely gets in the way of of leadership in the end, right? Of of helping an organization just focus not on. No, not on the metrics, not on the framework, but on focus on actual outcomes. So I think this, I, I think I'm going to have to borrow and adopt that one from you and let you know how I'm doing with it as well, because I think 2021 needs more simplicity, right? I think the just the amount of initiatives that organizations have undertaken, right? The, the various ways they're looking at measuring things. If we don't distill that into some of the most meaningful ways of focusing and measuring what value we're delivering. Again, we're, we're inundating ourselves, but I think what's worse, and this, this came out from what you said, we're inundating the people who need to, in the end, sponsor and support these initiatives, right? Because Agile has become more complex, DevOps has become more complex, the frameworks have, have become more complex. And I don't know, I, I fear that that complexity is becoming unrelatable to, to more and more people within the organization. Yeah, one example, just to hit that last point at home, I remember... I don't know, four or five years ago, I was working with a VP of product, had about 100 people working on the product through that individual. And we, did, we were sitting in quarterly planning and just went through all the initiatives that that individual is responsible for working on, reporting on, and kind of being aware of the status on from the enterprise level, from the product family level, from their own product, and then other things they actually want to do for their product directly. And 33 different initiatives were in flight that this individual is supposed to focus on in addition to the product work, in addition to the things that they needed to do to move their product forward as a leader in a product organization. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of this for a good reason, right? There's, you know, there've been, and I think this is very timely as everyone's looking for the way that they think about 2021 and being successful in 2021 and making their teams and their organizations uh, successful and, and, and thrive in 2021. So much of those journeys have to do with measurement, right? I think the reason mm -hmm. that some of these, we've seen some of these things be, be really successful, things like OKRs and measurement, what matters. I think in the last couple of months, I've noticed that the vast majority of the organizations I work with are actually in the process of deploying things like OKRs and uh, objectives and key results. The ways of sort of mechanically misusing these things are, are just are so interesting. And I, I actually have noticed that when, and personally, I've been using OKRs for the better part of the, the last decade, actually almost all of the last decade within my organization. But one of the safety valves in there is that you can only, you know, you should make more than five for any particular thing, right? It's, it's, it's three to five and only you, you measure that each objective with up to three to five uh, metrics as well. So I think that actually inherent simplicity in there, I've seen people struggle with it, but actually provide a, a really good value, which is it, it makes you focus, right? It makes you, uh, it means you're not going to, you know, create a list of, of 20 KPIs to measure this, this one particular thing. So the, the, your common sense point makes a ton of sense, right? Is that in the way that we think about these things, we need to understand their purpose and we need to make sure that they, you know, that value is communicated and shared. So how do you relate this to flow? So I, I completely get that. I think the simplicity thing is, was very good inspiration for our listeners in terms of how they think about making those plans. Uh, but tell, you know, you mentioned personal flow and organizational flow. How, uh, how is the simplicity for you related to flow? A lot of ways, it's kind of like the flip side of managing work and process. Everybody in Lean talks about WIP, but the reverse of WIP is focus. 
and it's getting rid of all the things that distract you or all the things that are disrupting flow. And if you look at um, Dan's work on measuring flow and some of the work Tori McGinnis have done and, and all their metrics, flow is one of the best metrics if work moves. As soon as work stops and stops and stops and then moves a little bit and stops and starts and stops, that's, that's when you have no flow. All of our metrics, all of our tools for measuring break down. Mm -hmm. It just becomes back to um, utilization cost, yeah. I guess, because you have no motion. So creating motion is the act of simplicity applied. So by simplifying the environment, to your point, having two corporate strategies instead of 20, to having one or two initiatives that each leader is leading, not 10, you, you start to allow those individuals to create focus for themselves in those areas and thus their organizations to put energy behind those two areas. And that's where the real flow comes from. It's from not scattering energy everywhere. It's putting the energy into an area where you can flow with it. You can apply it. You can steer it. You can make decisions that cause it to go in a different direction instead of your decisions just going into the pond and having no impact whatsoever. Exactly. I think that the, one of my biggest lessons in 2020, and just to touch on this this thing that you said, that the that the re reverse of WIP is focus. I realized that so much of what we were doing with the flow metrics was actually just identifying WIP. So mm -hmm. instead of measuring flow, measuring the lack of flow. Now, that's a really important thing, because mm -hmm. when you realize that that much WIP is impeding flow, and this common flow dysfunction that we saw across... Uh, you know, within pretty much every uh, organization where we deployed our value stream management solution, which is that WIP was increasing, and so that the rate of flow was decreasing, and then of course then that has an impact on the fact that there's no feedback and no learning, and and we've got that that whole problem, right? Mm -hmm. to grab one of Gene Kim's ideals, the focus, flow, and joy ideal, is that uh, we're we're getting further and further away from it. You know how are how are you going to help in uh, in 2021? So how are you going to to reverse the the WIP problem that we see? Uh, I, I think the first one is let's pull out the old toolbox. A lot of these things, I know you've referenced Rucker and Deming many a times, and they, they've written things 50 years ago that we're still learning today. Um, theory of constraints apply to some of these things. Step one, visualize. Make sure you can see where everything is, and then we can start to solve the problems, figure out where the actual constraints are across the different dimensions. In, in, in practice, I, I, I think I'm finding that most of the challenges that are really bubbling up to people fall in one of a handful of areas though, at least in my domain. I'm focused on kind of the active change and agile and lean transformation. So in that domain, one is just clarity of purpose. Why are we transforming? What are we trying to accomplish? Where are we going with this thing? All of that kind of, almost the de definitions of the OKRs for transformation itself. Why bother? What's the mm -hmm. purpose behind the objectives of transformation? And that that's a whole area that collectively I refer to as agile sponsorship. As that leader, that executive that's responsible, opt in or being told, however you got to that responsibility for leading and creating agile change in your organization. What do you got to do? Where do you, how do you form your center of excellence? How do you start change? Well, why do you start change is always the first question, not what do you do? So that that's one area. The other area of constraints and kind of, just logjam that I see in company after company is around portfolio management and where do you, how do you simplify the number of things going on so that people actually have a clue what's the most important to focus on. When a 
product owner in a team or when a product manager that's one of your 700 product managers on a Fortune 10 enterprise has a trade-off question to make, which way do they tip without having to escalate back to the CEO to find out which one's more important? And creating that environment around the portfolio where you can start to break the logjam and start to flow. And then the common theme you might have heard across both of those is what I'm starting to refer to as purpose management. How do, how do you look at the reason behind the OKRs? How do you elaborate to people why are they doing the work they're doing, not just at the outcomes level, but at the intent level? I spent a decent chunk of my Safe Summer presentation this year talking about what do we even mean by purpose and how do you get from enduring purpose to like current activity and the benefits of it? So Eric, and I think the interesting thing about your experiences and our, our, our shared experiences is just how senior level in the organization, you're actually identifying these challenges. And then again, I think this agile sponsorship approach to really helping organizations navigate a path through them and really individuals help the organizations navigate a path through them. Talk a little bit more about how you think about agile sponsorship. I've absolutely seen this, right? Where it's, it doesn't have the right purpose. It's overly mechanical. It's a lot of the things that, that you have described, right? Just people going through the motion. Where does that person come from? Because in the end, you know, I know the way I think about it is you know, purpose has to start with a customer, with a business outcome, with, with, with something that, that, great organizations are are really driven by delivering to the market. So how tell us how you think about purpose, because in the end, it, it really is that, is that that purpose needs to drive into how you structure everything from the transformation, from what you measure, from how you empower and structure and, and manage your teams. And you manage, you know, basically everything around purpose rather than proxies. So yeah, one of, one of the things that I remarked on, I don't know, probably three years ago, I've been looking in a similar reflection period back on a number of different successful and less successful adoptions. And I noticed the thread that the most successful agile change efforts and the ones that were the most fun to work on, which don't <laughs> underestimate the power of fun, were the ones that were led by business leaders, not by technology leaders. They're ones that it was somebody in quote unquote the business, and it's not my favorite term, but it's useful in this case, somebody with a PL or a strong responsibility for something was pulling for agility in order to achieve something else. Yeah. And, and that's that's really the unifying theme I discovered. Agility doesn't have its own goal. Agility is not the outcome, it's not the purpose. Winning in whatever market you're in is a purpose. Achieving your company's enduring purpose is a purpose. And agility needs to tie to that purpose and to those market outcomes in a clear and obvious way. And that's when you start to pull people along. That's when you start to get alignment. So first thing as a sponsor to look at is why. Why do we want to invest in this big, messy change that adds new job families and changes people's reporting structures and asks people to follow new process and uh, changes our funding model, which is like the nervous system of the organization. Like we're, almost changing the DNA in certain ways. You're asking for all this change, tie it back to the outcomes that matter so that we can do this in this market, so that we can be a company positioned for this, so that as large retailer X decides to move into our market, we can accomplish these other goals. And, and we start to do that, the change gets easier. The change, people suddenly see why they should step up and you have a conversation with the CFO and they're not looking for reasons to say no to you. They're looking for ways to solve the problem with you as opposed to the 
stereotypical agile consultant that might walk in and tell the CEO or the CFO that they're doing it wrong and not really have a better answer of how to do it. Yeah, and this is, I think, reflecting on 2020, I can't, I've seen some very similar patterns, right? I think that the one that the one that's you mentioned about the most successful transformations being fun, that is an interesting one. I think I don't think I've reflected enough on. I think there, there's a, a lot of truth to that one. But it, it's driven by a, the successful ones are driven by a strong, very strong purpose, a strong sense of why, right? Is that yeah, we want to lead in the market. We need to win this against a, a competitor. We need to become more innovative. And I know that for so many organizations, the context of these transformations is, you know, they've got their measurements there, right? they've got their agile metrics, they've got the Dora metrics there and so on. And I realized when I was looking at, okay, how do we make a more simple metrics framework that makes sense to the business and captures those simple business concepts that are more relatable, like time to market, so flow time, that alone doesn't have meaning or it doesn't have purpose unless we tie it to, you know, in the flow framework, it's a business result, right? That these two things always need to go hand in hand. Otherwise, these large organizations, and it could really be just a function of their size, right? When you've got these large PMOs or transformation offices, they tend to you know, gather their own gravity that will often be disconnected from what's actually driving a purpose for the business, for the customer, for the business partner. So how, how do you get people to think it? So I guess, is that enough to say is you need to start with that clarity of purpose? How, how have you been approaching this with the leaders you're working with? You kind of hit on the second one there with your last statement is once you understand what that purpose is, the next critical step is all around chartering the transformation. I, I see a gap there. A lot of times it starts bottoms up and like-minded people start to connect. And I, I had a, a VP today talking about himself as bottoms up, which was amusing at times. But the connection here starts to pull more and more people together. Pause, reflect. Um, take that moment, Dave Marte's blue work, and say, okay, what are we going to accomplish with this thing? And now charter the transformation properly so that it doesn't just become that pull all the things together and get stuck. Because a transformation of any sort, like if you want to use the word transformation correctly, it touches everything. We do this for digital transformation, DevOps, we know how deep that cultural change can go, measurement transformations, care transformations, wherever you're working, they start to touch all the areas in the company. So pause and establish that mandate in that network and start to get interested people moving in the same direction. And one of the things I did when I was setting up a transformation office that I was leading was I gave myself a two-year shelf life. And I said, if I'm not to a certain point in two years, this org should disperse. It shouldn't turn into this center of agility forever in the organization because that's not agile. Agile is about change and decentralize. So creating lots of action, starting to tease apart the big ball of yarn that is transformation and getting those constraints resolved throughout the organization. You got to start with that tight charter. What are we trying to accomplish? Who's responsible? Where does the power of this group stop where you need to work through influence and through inspiration? Yeah, so that's, I think, is... Super insightful, fascinating, and really contrary to a lot of what I've seen, right? Where what I'm seeing in some of these transformation offices, which I, you know, I like I, these are really fundamental, important functions these companies are creating, right? These are the people who are truly motivated to help the organization become more innovative and win the market and, and survive and thrive. 
but it's almost seems like the way that they're being set up is similar to the way that we saw project management offices, PMOs get set up. Right. And what you just said, I feel like is sort of the opposite of that charter, which is the fact that this, this there's a finite scope and you actually, you just said there's a finite time frame. So that's uh, some interesting contrarian thinking. So can you say a bit more about that? Would you actually spin up and tear down transformation offices when, once you had that agility in the organization? How, how do you think about this area? I would, but with caveats. First, um, just to make sure that nobody said, but Eric said so, <laughs> I think it's a timeline. Every company will have a different timeline based on size, complexity, and so on. Um, two years is not the magic number. But what I look at is I want to intentionally build structures and networks in the organization such that when the transformation effort is over, the network still exists. Right. Um, so as a consultant, my mindset has always been not to put myself in the middle of everything and become part of the conduit, but instead to weave the web that when I step out, nobody notices. If you look at that at organizational scale from a transformation perspective, each transformation, each huge change that the company wants to undergo, it's, it's a Horizon 2 effort. You had Peter Moore a few weeks ago, I think. Uh, come on. It, it's a Horizon 2 transition for agility. You don't want your inspired visionaries trying to lead the operations of agility. They're gonna be poor at that. They're great at inspiring people and laying down the groundwork and bringing people along. I also create a portfolio operations group. And that's where a lot of the agility and operations lives. Frameworks like SAFE combine the elements into one kind of big blob called lace or whatever. But I, I intentionally split, split out change leadership from operations and effectiveness. But they should be partnering closely every step along the way. My ops partners, when I'm leading a change, are my best friends. They have to be. I'm not going to get anything done. But that's the sustaining organization I want left behind. I, I just could not agree more. Right? My my entire goal as well, and 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 our flow teams and everyone I I work with as partners like yourselves is to establish that network, right? To establish that value stream network to make sure it's measurable and, and to make sure that the organization can maintain and evolve that network and and find its constraints, right? Yep. And I think rather than establishing a whole new office for you know basically creating these edicts for how to be agile and so on i think that the danger there is that danger of of, of proxy metrics right the danger is you've created this large infrastructure whose goal is kind of to measure and manage and, and and train itself rather than establishing the network and in the organization that's self-sustainable. So I think that that is a really good visual and a great way to look at it. Well, there's a, there's a secondary concern sitting around that that goes unnoticed is that when you do operations, it's the same people over and over again. When you do change, the next big change, you need different leaders touching different parts of the organization leading that change. And the moment you create a change office that is expected to do many changes, Suddenly, it's like introducing a business analyst as a proxy. You, you've got mid-level leaders because senior leaders that aren't caring about a given change don't get involved. Trying to wrangle people instead of being able to bring that real guiding coalition to the table as being the change leaders focused on this change. Yeah. And building those dynamic leadership teams with the right executives from across different silos, that's what starts to stitch the silos together and then provides a behavioral example for how everybody else should work together across silos, slowing the organization. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm just reflecting on an organization that's doing that's 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 not thinking about it this way, but that I, I just started working with recently. Where so that the size of the transformation office, the amount, and you know, it's they've got they've created this mechanical implementation of safe that is measuring all sorts of things, but I think none of those related in any way to any outcome, or at least not directly related. Right? There's nothing wrong. Like there's like you know. Safe is a great thing to roll out, but it's not. It doesn't really uh, drive greatness until you've actually connected it to the business, to value streams, to to delivery. And they've just gone through this just massive effort implementing the Dora metrics, right? The DevOps handbook, and that that in itself became the purpose. But if I actually look at what and so that means that now, of course, everyone on the team needs to know how to measure that. The really large effort has gone to reporting it, making sure that the reporting of it's you know correct and to be used for this. But none of it is really tied back in to a business result. And then it was just completely eye-opening for me when I saw the the talk by John Allspaw at this year's DevOps Enterprise Summit, where he talks about how some of these metrics, like the Dora metrics, the MTTR charts, when you present them to leadership, you cause them to come to the exact wrong conclusions. And that presenting them is like is is just you just should avoid it. It's 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 a kind of nuanced but super brilliant talk because you know you're not actually providing that kind of communication messaging around the person around why you're doing it. You've just created an organization that's gotten very good at measuring this proxy and the proxy becomes the purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. So just being able to measure MTTR becomes the purpose, which then, of course, I think interestingly, in this organization has, co- has caused sponsorship of the transformation to be lost because it, it's not tied into the to the common purpose that you have on the business side, on the on really at high levels in the organization who, you know, who are feeling the pressure and the need to, to compete and to innovate and, and to avoid their, you know, basically to make sure that, that they're not getting disrupted. Let me, let me touch one other thing that's really important in that context. Real quick, the uh, another detail in there is just that the implementation you get, whether it's safe or DevOps or whatever, tends to reflect the mindset of the person leading the transformation. So if you have a CIO, CTO type lead on your transformation who is very focused on building stuff, you're going to get a feature factory implementation of safe. Interesting. Yeah. If you have a product leader, you're going to get a product focused tra- implementation of yeah. safe. If you have a coalition leading it, the right coalition, they're going to have to sort that out amongst themselves, kind of Lencioni style, get that clarity amongst themselves before they can provide it. Then you have a chance of getting a well-balanced enterprise value-focused transformation. Yes. I'm just going through all of the, yeah, all of the examples of this in, in my mind. But I, I think I, I think there's a there's a lot to that, right? And I think there's there are different approaches to that to make sure that you've got, you know, the, the CIOs who I've seen thrive have had very close partnerships with people within lines of business, other business leaders, and so on. But in the end, I guess it is what you're saying, which is that's formed these oftentimes informal. Coalitions. That means that you know you're not just responsible for for putting in measurement. You're responsible for putting in measurement that then drives business outcomes and, and, and drives results. So to avoid that, because we'll have lots of CIOs and, and you know more technology centric organizations, chief product officers and others, and VPs of products and, and such, and and R and D leading these transformations. Right? They'll have been tasked with, and they'll have been tasked with it now for this year. Right? And so I think the more we can help them this year, the better. So. One of the main things that you're pointing out, I think that's, that sounds like a common theme here, is this risks of mechanical adoption of, of anything, be it you know, some DevOps metrics, be it safe, be it some other framework that you've, you know, uh, that, that, that's homegrown within the organization. So can you 
Speak a bit more to that. What, why is that such a common, you know, I don't think a CIO wants to fall into that, right? Everyone wants these outcomes. Why is it such a common pitfall that this mechanical adoption? And I feel like, Eric, I'm going to just one interruption, and which actually reflect on some of your career because you've seen this over the years. This is, and this is just, uh, I'm not yet sure about this, but it, it seems to me like I've seen it more over the course of the last year or so, just, just the mechanic, mechanical adoptions. And maybe it's where we are in the adoption curve. Maybe it's more pragmatist or something, but are you seeing it more and, and why, or why is it happening so much? I'm going to agree. I was about to say, I think part of it is tied to the late majority where people are doing it because it's working for their competitors. Yeah. Uh, and there's certainly something to that. I mean, think about the prevalence of the Spotify model and conversation out around the world. I, I think part of it is because it's hard. I, I was I was talking with somebody leading a Fortune 50 transformation earlier this morning, and she was asking for some resources around making the product trans the product transformation or product centric transition for one of their SVPs. And, and it hit me. I'm like, well. Here's a bunch of things I can send them to your podcast. You're working on. I'm like, well, wait. What if what what are they actually trying to get through themselves? Are they trying to get through the this is valuable and I need to get started on it curve, like the convince me part, or are they trying to truly dive into the I want to do this and lead this part? And the convince me part is like easy-ish. I mean, it's it's a relatively low bar. Yeah. And then I think about the number of different domains in the cognitive load and the learning required to truly lead something as deep as a proper transformation, what executive has time for that if they're not doing it as their focus, if they don't care enough? And I mean care and I care because this is inherently tied to something in my business and something in my company's future sense, then I'm looking for that easy path. And the easy path is, I don't know, pick up the implementation roadmap and follow the script. Right. And that leads to a mechanical outcome that's somewhat detached from purpose. It's not a fit for purpose agility, it's just agility. Okay, but that's almost a bit of a catch 22 for some of these executives because mm -hmm. what's happening is we're seeing organization leaders who are being tasked with transformation for transformation's sake, which we're saying is a problem, at the same rate. You know, if someone who's closer to the business tends not to have agility and transformation and some of these you know, more technical practices on top of their own high priority on their list for, for 2021. So it, you, did, you did remind me of this thing. You mentioned uh, the podcast with Peter Moore, I think. One thing that I really took to heart when I first read Zone to Win was that the only way in this four zones model for something to make it out of into the something in the transformation zone to really become a core part of the business to really transform the business was with direct CEO sponsorship. And Jeffrey Moore is very blunt about this in the way he wrote it up is if it's that big, it, it requires CEO sponsorship. Otherwise, all these other immune systems, the organizations, these political systems, these P&Ls all over the place will shut that thing down. Right, because it's not delivering enough money yet. Uh, there's lots of reasons to be skeptical about it, and so on. So, you know, given that these transformations are, I think both of us believe, more consequential than any new product the organization will launch. Right, this is truly building the the, the new factories. If you're a manufacturer, right, this is modernizing, electrifying your 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 factory back a hundred years ago. So, this is arguably more important than than any product or service the organization provides. So. Where does the Agile sponsorship need to come from? I found, I found a loophole in Zone to Win around that. And I might be using it wrong, but the, it's working, so I'm fine with that. 
if you think about the performance matrix in there, it's got a number of performance zone line items, a number of productivity zone line item, or columns. If I can get one of those in its entirety and have the leader of that sponsoring it personally, you can get a good fitness for purpose agility in that row or in that column. One PML, one technology domain slash area. And that provides the proof point that will trigger it and snowball to the whole company. Yeah. Because you don't want to bet your company on something untried unless you're on that burning platform. And yeah. burning platform implementations are kind of scary. Yeah. Like, so much stress. It, usually they get you out of the fire and then you stop. Yeah. So pick, the, pick a uh, performance zone line of business and fix that with agility. And I'm not talking just technology agility. This is kind of the whole in whatever you define business agility as, that whole thing. DevOps, digital, kind of all the things. And you start to see that benefit of thinking of that business like a product and creating internal products and getting that value stream and that flow and suddenly innovation that starts happening. That's inspiring to all the other executives to say, I got to get in some of that. So I think that loophole, if that's what it is, it wasn't mentioned in the book. So, but in my experience, it actually makes sense, right? Because what it's saying is you're taking one of those performance on rows, one of these P&Ls in the end lines of business, whatever it is that you're managed, that's that's being managed, that has some kind of general manager or SVP or whatever heading it, and you're treating it as a business, right? And and it's that that business is the one that's transforming itself, right? So mm-hmm. it'll take some aspect of 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 the agile transformation, and it'll actually become a proof point. And I and reflecting again on. The successes I've seen from organizations in 2020, just like you said, the, the fun thing was a common factor for you. Being led by the business was a common factor for you. This was absolutely one of the common factors for successes I've seen is that it has been the transformation was proven out. The value streams were established. The project to product shift was made. You know, the flow metrics were, were implemented in one of the uh, higher visibility and performance of things are meant to drive top line, right? So in one of the larger revenue businesses, and it was done with a drive from leadership in that, whatever it is, that business unit, that line of business, that, that part of the organization. And then that was used as a proof point to scale. Exactly. So I think that's, that's a super interesting uh, pattern for where the sponsorship could come from is you, you take it from one of the, I guess the other pattern I saw, Eric, is that there was a lot of pressure for that row, for that for that particular business to change, and some kind of transformation leader there who provided the sponsorship. Going to a wager a small bet that for the successful ones, that leader then took all of the leaders of the productivity zone partners they had to work with and pulled them to the table and said, We gotta solve this. Yeah. And and look. It worked. We're not a snowflake, right? We're, we, you know, this actually did work. We saw results in, in six months, not 18, and so on. Yeah. And it is, I, I think an aspect of this that I think has been an, an healthy dynamic is it has been those parts of the business that are most under competitive pressure, right? The ones that, that need to innovate faster, the ones who have their backlogs have gotten to the point where, you know, they know they need to just completely change how they deliver and the cycles they do that on. Okay, so that sounds like a good New Year's resolution for some, from a good chunk of our listeners is pick that performance zone thing and, and demonstrate these, these new ways of working there. You know, from the tooling to the methodologies to the reporting, it's interesting because at, at large organizations, there's still a lot of dependencies on, on the central IT team and the central tools team and 
you know, there's the, the, the PMO teams and so on. So any advice on, and again, you've seen the range, right? You're right up to this, the, the scale of CA. You've helped so, you know, implement effective transformations. How, how then do you manage that desire for one of the performance zone businesses to move faster with sort of the inertia of some of the centralized operations? Yeah, this, this is one of the few areas where I, I do look a little bit to multimodal or bimodal and that kind of thinking. It's like, okay, well, where are the areas that can change easily? Let's focus there. Where where can we drive meaningful, impactful change that doesn't pull many, many dependencies in? And, and I see dependencies on like six or seven different axes when I look at organizations from like the customer journey and CX to the org design, kind of the team topologies, thinking there, business architecture, enterprise architecture, and so on. Don't, don't pick the hard spots. Find, find the easy wins that have high leverage and start there because, again, winning pulls more energy. If nothing else, it frees up capital to go invest to fix some of the other things. And if yeah. you have a monolithic architecture that's resisting all of your attempts to do DevOps, yep. um, maybe you can make some wins purely on the surface yep. that give you the permission to start applying a tra- strangulation pattern and teasing apart that monolith. Yeah, exactly. And if we have to launch the capital first. So go do that. Don't, don't fight that. Don't say, well, we're, we can't do any Agile until we fix this DevOps monolith. Yeah. We can't do any DevOps until we're off the mainframe in five years. Well, no. Find an area where you can win and start to get the benefits that pay for the future change. Because yeah. the cost of delay of not doing it is far too high. Yeah, exactly. And then those kinds of wins, I mean, you know, we both see it, right? It's, it's fun, right? Seeing those results rather than saying, oh, we, you know, we, we need to move off mainframe to change anything. You don't, right? If there's a focus on just finding your constraints, seeing and measuring your flow, it's, it is amazing to me still. Another kind of key lesson for me from 2020 is how much low-hanging fruit there is. Like how many excuses there's not to change. Like we've got this massive monolith that's going to take us two years just to you know, start to apply some strangler pattern and put some APIs on it to when you actually see what the constraints are and then going after those, those bottlenecks and celebrating those early wins. So I think there's, uh, and it's, it's, it's fun. Right when when you just in, yeah reduced your whip by twenty percent you saw velocity go up and someone sends you this amazing email from from what the, what the teams have delivered it is it is it's 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 really fun. What else are you focused on in uh in, in health organizations in twenty twenty one? I think the other one is just paying attention to the speed of the journey and being intentional about the fact that it is a journey instead of trying to dive into all the things. When we were talking about mechanical adoption earlier, one of the other drivers of mechanical adoption that I've seen, or maybe um, even worse, what's called explosive adoption, is when you see a couple wins on important programs, and everybody then just goes and launches trains. Everybody mm. starts to create from mm-hmm. Everybody just pushes into whatever the most visible aspect of the change was and tries to copy it. Phrases like protocol start to come to mind here. And because you weren't intentional about it, the organizational ecosystem collapses. Finance was able to ignore and hand wave one program, but they can't do that for 50. Right. HR could could wink and nod about one group operating without proper job architectures and not really being sure about the career progression for people, but not 5,000 people. That's, that's starting to become them of not doing their job. So when you start to just push more and more at 
the organizational support systems, they'll collapse because they can't handle everything as an exception. The whole reason to create a functional hierarchy is to handle things right. in a consistent, meaningful, optimized way. So one of the things that I, I look at is after you've done that initial exploring and you've got a couple proof points in the small, important programs, top line revenue, things that people see winners, that's when I actually tap the brakes a little bit. Hmm. And I say, congratulations. You've created so much pent up demand for agility that you can use that pressure to drive change to these systems. Let's pick three more important programs, not 30, and overstaff them with agility. Put extra, whether you call them consultants or leaders or free agent SVPs, your, your change executives, put some extra support around the next three programs and keep looking for those organizational stresses. Where are you creating friction through the act of trying to implement using agility? Uh, I think, oh, who is it? Uh, Dan Rigsby, I believe, in his book, uh, Doing Agile Right, talked about a prototypical scrum master just kind of writing down all the organizational impediments. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Because then you go support the initiatives that can fix those. Yeah. And that's a key part of your center of excellence for your change office. No single scrum team or release train or delivery group can go change those organizational processes. But a center of excellence with dedicated skills and an organizational mandated charter can go partner with finance to fix how you do financial auditing. They can go partner with HR and write a new job architecture that gives product management a promotion path or gives Scrum Masters a promotion path. Then go work with your audit and compliance team to come up with the automated security approaches that are described in the DevOps handbook. And you can do the join these initiatives. Now, Mark Richards talks about this viral infection of those initiatives. You put some Agilists in and you get Agile initiatives. And they start to raise the water for everybody and make the barrier to agility lower across the organization. The win of this exercising agility, and that's the second phase I think of is exercising agility. The win of that is when you're no longer afraid of another release train launching. Um, kind of think back to the in the DevOps metaphor where you get to the point where deployment's a non-issue. It just yeah. happened overnight. You wake up and 20 of them happened. Yeah. Um, you want to get to the point where release trains just launch and you don't even need the center of excellence paying attention to it. Yeah. And you have no concerns. And then you can start to scale. And then you can start to apply the same patterns over and over again and let the local leadership use that easier barrier to entry, that reduced path, simplified path. And they can just adopt the right structure in their environment. And if they're wrong, they're wrong. The cost is low because they haven't broken finance. They haven't broken HR. The safety nets are all in place now. Yeah, and this is this has been a fascinating thing to me as well is in terms of more learnings from last year. When there is that key point where you know finance, the business, finance, and I, and of course, I, I like you, I want to use business carefully, right? Because in the end, there should be just the business. That's that's the way it is at you know at every company I've worked at, but uh, with with business and technology are one. But finance and HR, it when they're in the room, when they're sort of understanding how to you know, basically uh, structure things for flow based on some proof wins within that organization, right? I've, I've seen the flip side, probably like you, right? Where it just, you know, tens of the thousands of staff shifted to the Spotify model. Everyone's completely confused. The job titles are different and not, no one's actually felt any benefit to a change that took 12 months and, and just an insane amount of organizational effort and change management, right? Versus what you're describing, Eric, which is you know, prove this out within a part that you can transform easily enough 
get some low-hanging fruit. Make sure, actually, I think the key thing I'm saying is that finance and HR leadership is part of some of those discussions so that they understand how to put in the infrastructure for launching the next, you know, that next 20 trains and value streams, right? So I think that's absolutely a key one as well as, you know, depending where people are in their, who are listening right now, where they are in their journeys, right? Which is, I th- when, when I see those people in the room and starting to learn how to adapt to these things and being part of those initial wins, you know, A, they feel engaged in the process and they're going to be key to making sure that launching those next, those next trains and value streams is a non-event. Similar to uh, the evolution of site reliability engineers and so on, the nature of your transformation team, your, your center of excellence or your transformation office evolves with that journey. How they have to support it will right. shift in different stances, area to area, face to face. Yeah, exactly. But then if we are to apply then theory of constraints thinking to that journey, it is really interesting to me how much when the scaling comes, finance has been kept out of it. HR has been kept out of it. The, the business leaders have been kept out of it, right? We're, we're just, you know, we should be able to move faster. But meanwhile, you know, the constraints that come from infrastructure operations, a, a, HR, are actually the main constraints to scaling, and and everyone's afraid to launch the next ten trains. And and you know, it, it's I have not heard of it talked about that way, right? There's that the the kind of disciplined time to tap the brakes. I think that's a really good way to, to think about it. and who needs to be on board and setting up those new systems for that new network. I don't think it's rocket science, right? Lots of companies operate this way, but. I, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying is tap that breaks at the right time and make sure that those those other functions are ready to go. And then Eric, so last thing I want to make sure that we touch on you. So your views, because you know, for me this this year is obviously gonna be doing just to dumb it down a bit as I was as I was reflecting on it. It's just helping organizations apply flow metrics and OKRs or whatever, whatever basically per however they connect their purpose to their initiatives quickly so that they make sure they've got everyone on board and setting up and measuring and optimizing this network and and making the right decisions, which is more often than not dramatically reducing in web to increase flow. So how how are you thinking and, and guiding the people that you work with on, on, on just on that whole portfolio level, right? In the end, we want to establish this network that supports these lean portfolios. Just if you could share a bit of your, your wisdom and learnings on that front, I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, the, the portfolio is an interesting one because it it is such a crucial part of the financial nervous system of a corporation. And a lot of people look at it as like, by your language, like the office of no and kind of a lot of derogatory language about portfolio management. And I don't think that's helpful because it doesn't, it's not anchored in understanding of what the purpose that group is meant to provide in the first place. And I like to go back to the simplified view of this is how you connect strategy to execution. Mm-hmm. We have a purpose as a business. We want to do the work in our, in our context, normally technology work, that is necessary to achieve that purpose. How do we spend our money to do so? And if you look at SAFE, they kind of break into three pieces. There's how do you make the investment decisions as to what's most important to do there? Mm-hmm. How do you operate it once it's going, kind of that runtime operational, and how do you govern it to make sure you're getting what you want out of it? If if you can accomplish those goals, you're probably in good shape. Now we get into the details and we we know what's hiding in the details. And this is where I think people miss the important steps of, let's just focus on one, Porter's advice. The essence of strategy is what you don't do. Mm -hmm. Make sure you know what to stop. Focus a lot of energy on what doesn't align to strategy and getting that out of the way because that will simplify. That clears the waters 
and makes it possible to see what the real value things are. Um, I saw on the back of a business card, and I don't know the source of the quote, kill all the good ideas so the great ideas can thrive. Yeah. And I love that one. So that, that's just simplification piece one. And then I, I just, um, they just published, I think it was in the last couple of days, a new article in Cutter where I wrote a piece on defragmenting your value streams, not stopping, or not, I shouldn't say stop, not paying attention to creating flow across ever wider sets of silos in your organization, figuring out how you actually build things, defining those internal products, starting to reorient your thinking around value so that you can reorient your systems and your funding and your architectures and your people and everything else that comes into the change. But getting that common language, that common shape of here's how we think about our business and our value and getting people on the same page, that's the biggest step for portfolio management in my mind is Mm -hmm. taking those not just the project chunks, but just the flows of intent in the organization, the the path decisions taken, starting to simplify that, then you can start to create pockets, I think of them as islands of flow. Mm -hmm. You you have an internal product. It has a little bit of a walled garden, which feels a little exclusionary, but it creates a calm space that can actually have a roadmap and deliver against it and thrive and improve its systems and all those great things around agility. Portfolio management is creating those islands. Yep. Through funding, through people allocation and staffing. And once you get enough of those, then you can start to do the rest of the cool stuff around lean portfolio management and everything else. But start with that flow. Yeah, I mean, I I could not agree more with what you just said. And I think this interesting observation for me is those islands of flow, they're self-perpetuating, right? Is that when they hit, because we have organizations where we lot like, oh, well, we're missing so much. So much of our upfront work definition is still in requirements and people still have it in a spreadsheet or Confluence or SharePoint or wherever. But, but when you actually start creating and nurturing those islands of flow, they want to grow. And all of a sudden, more and more work gets brought to the value stream because, because kind of the collaboration and the pull in the end drives it, right? You've got people, you know, you, you stop having the, the teams, the delivery teams being the bottlenecks. And all of a sudden, that, that island of flow grows and, and encompasses more and more of the value stream. So I think that's a, a, a great vision for LPM. That's there's, awesome. There's a caveat there. So Got to be careful not to um, scale up, but instead scale out. Thinking about it from another, I find that so many of my architectural analogies from being a practicing architect fit in organizational design. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you have a well-functioning group, everybody wants to give that group more work. Yep. Instead, jump next to them on the value stream. Totally. You've got a business that has a, a challenge and you, with one area and one software platform, build a product, internal product around that software platform, and then go help the other business that consumes that platform and the other business. Yep. And then figure out what products that product relies on. And instead of making that product bigger and turning into a new monolith, have the discipline to say, okay, what's the next step in the network? Yeah. And what's the network of services they rely on? Who consumes them? And how can we productize those and, and spread outward? Yeah, I could not agree more. And the thing that we see over and over, I still think it's, it's a lot of a lot of organizations take a while to get there, right? But in the end, if you actually look at look you look at that network, it's exactly what you say, right? Is you, you look for where the constraint is. The constraints are you know they're not on the business application; they're below it, right? They're somewhere in the architecture or some monolith that you've got, and then in a in a you know broken value stream that's lacking automation, as overly slow security reviews and such. So yeah, taking this taking this scaling out approach rather than, than scaling up. But it, it is interesting. It's a very common anti-pattern. We got it working here. Let's give them more work. 
right? Whereas, of course, then you're just back to uh, undoing the reversing of the whip <laughs> that, that you actually succeeded with in the first place. So I think that's, that's another key thing that people should apply to in 2021. Eric, any other anything that we we've missed? This has been, I think, some 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 great guidance and direction. But if you know, thinking back to to the thoughts that you had around simplicity and flow when you were reflecting on your year, any any other anything else that you want to share? I really have people thinking as they as they make their resolutions. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I watched a um, short video from Simon Sinek uh, a few days ago where he outlined the characteristics of a good vision, mission, core statement. Mm-hmm. And I want to tease one element out of there that kind of transcends everything that we've talked about. And that is the service element to this. Kind of the other pillar of LPM that I was just talking about. We talked about islands of flow and simplicity, but the flip side, the other piece that you need to put into there is a LPM function that has a service mindset. We are servant leaders that are unblocking and serving the people that are spending the actual money. Transformation leaders that are taking a service mindset around how can I best serve the purpose of the organization through through agility and agile change. And really probably, if you want to take it to a parting piece of advice for flow and simplicity, it's not flow and simplicity for your sake. It's flow and simplicity for the people who are consuming your services sake. And how do you truly serve other people's purposes as part of your purpose. That's awesome. That that's a, I think a really good one for us to uh, end the podcast and all all reflect on. And that's yeah, I, I could not agree more. Um, so just to wrap up, Eric, anything I know you've been putting out some amazing materials. Uh, anything you want to and we'll we'll link them all on the resources. But anything in, in particular you want to point us to and and where can people find you? Hi, you can find me on a, uh, my website elevate.to. Elevate two is our company slash Eric. Um, that has links out to a lot of my things. You can find a uh, link to an overview of the journey of the lace where I talked about some of the stages, a few other articles, my blog's linked from there. Yeah, and then at risk of teasing something, but I'll put myself on record so I actually have to do it this year. One of my big goals for this year is to move a book on agile sponsorship ahead in a big way. So continue to expect to see lots of writing around that showing up in the blog and evolving um, towards that book. That's awesome. I think that that will be a tremendous contribution. And, and thanks for uh, for sharing a, a preview of some of your your thoughts on this. So, all right. So simplicity and flow, and 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 it's all about providing that and serving it to others. So thanks so much, Eric. Thanks, Mike. It was fun. And happy new. A huge thank you to Eric for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MigPlus1 or Project to Product. You can reach out to Eric on LinkedIn or his Twitter handle, which is at ERWillicky. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product Get the Book. And remember, all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.